Welcome to Kitchen Stories, produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of BC. I'm your host, Michael Schwartz. Thanks for joining us. Today in the final installment of our three-part episode on food justice, we put the ideas of the past two episodes into practice by speaking with active community members engaged in alternative food movements that affect change in our local community. These voices come together to show Vancouver's strength as a city where innovative food initiatives are born and excel. And then I have a favorite Jewish food joke that I'd okay. like to share. Okay. Um, so there's a Pesach Seder and they bring out the brisket mm-hmm. and uh, there's a new uh, son-in-law at the table and he says, well, I'd like the end cut of the brisket. He says, no, 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 it's not kosher. You can't have the end cut, it's not kosher. He says, what do you mean it's not kosher? I grew up in a kosher home. I always have the end cut. No, it's not kosher to have the ends. Really, that's just crazy. And I said, no, you, you ask Bubby. Bubby knows. Bubby, why do we cut off the ends of the brisket? Well, that's how my mother made the brisket, to make it kosher. It happens to be that Great Bubby is there. And so you ask Great Bubby, Great Bubby, why do we cut off the ends of the brisket? Isn't it to make it kosher? He says, no, I had a very small oven and a very small pan, and that was the only way it would fit in. <laughs> Uh, so I'm Rabbi Dan Moskovitz. I'm the senior rabbi at Temple Shalom here in Vancouver, and I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, when I was about, I think, six or seven, our family became kosher. We, in fact, we got very involved with Chabad, so Chabad came and koshered our kitchen. I remember toiling our dishes in the San Francisco Bay. And so our menu kind of changed a little bit. Uh, but generally, my parents made very healthy food growing up. Certainly, there was uh, a family tradition of certain uh, items. My mom's uh, a luxion kugel, a cinnamon raisin. I remember as we uh, got to be more health conscious, the butter content of that kugel diminished, as did the sugar content. Historically, uh, I mean, food has been really all the way from the Garden of Eden, I guess you could say, but certainly up through with Abraham. You know, they say food is love, and I, and I think within Judaism that's quite very true. If not love, then certainly affinity. First stories of Abraham is of him rushing out from his tent to greet guests, visitors that are coming to him, and he would bring them back and he would make for them food, uh, and Sarah would make for them cakes, and they would prepare fine meals as a, as a sign of, a, of, of affection. And I think we've continued that on through the ages, you know, maybe perhaps to our own uh, demise and suffering, not demise, but to, to, our, to our own misfortune. Well, so at the end of a meal, we, we, we say a prayer called Birkat Hamazon, and it's actually a quite long prayer, and at one point of the, the prayer it says, we ate and we were satisfied. We had enough. And the, the idea that some eat and are not satisfied, that, they don't, that they're food insecure, that they don't have enough, is it's an anathema to the Jewish people, it, it, to, to many of us who grew up with Jewish mothers for whom food was loved, that they should run out of food at a meal would be, you know, a grave sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we look at both our community and other communities, food seems like a, a fairly simple and incredibly important thing, a problem that we can solve. I mean, connected to the idea of tikkun olam, that we're supposed to repair the brokenness in the world, to see people that are hungry and to know that there's such abundance around us, there's a place where we can have direct and immediate impact in making change. Yeah, my name's David Shine. I started Food Stash Foundation in September, and it's a food recovery 
food rescue Canadian charity that kind of acts as a middleman delivery man between grocery stores, mm-hmm. produce stores, bakeries, cafes, etc. Mm-hmm. Picking up any unsold leftover items such as you know, dairy products, bread products, uh, fruit and vegetables and meat and pretty much everything and then redistributing it. There's food waste happening at every level, which makes it really hard to deal with. There's mm-hmm. food waste at the farm, at the wholesaler, at the store, and then also at home. I guess, well, I started cooking, I guess, in, in university. I used to be a high school teacher as well, and so I had my summers off. I do a lot of cooking and fermenting and freezing and dehydrating in the summer, and then just kind of live off that and make tons of tomato sauce and go berry picking. And so that kind of got me into preserving the harvest. When I was a kid, all the schools, we'd do big can drive. If a can of tuna costs $2, so you buy it and donate it, if that went to a food recovery organization with $2 in gas, they could potentially, you know, rescue $100 worth of food values. Food rescue, you can get more bang for your buck. Yeah, shifting that way is kind of better for, for everyone. My name is Mark Schutzbank, and I was born in Mount Kisco, New York. Vancouver is actually the longest place I've ever lived. The last place was Pittsburgh, and I was five years. Mark Schutzbank is the director of Fresh Roots, a nonprofit organization that works with school communities to grow good food for all. They are dedicated to improving access to healthy food, land, and community, and they do so through ecological stewardship programs. Both my parents worked, and so there's always like a meal that was on the table. And like often it would be canned string beans and lots of stuff that could be done quickly so that what was really important was us eating together and sitting down together. Uh, Definitely my mom has some like amazing meals. My dad is, uh, my dad makes like two dishes really well. (laughs) Uh, He's getting better actually as he gets older. My like path towards food really came through genocide prevention policy. I did my undergrad in finance and political science. I took a couple of classes with a human rights theorist and like normative uh, political philosopher, Michael Goodhart, who's in Pittsburgh, really incredible guy. And as I was doing that work, I was just learning about everything that was happening in Darfur and kind of like that's where I was involved in my Jewish community this organization called Stand. There's lots of Jews in Pittsburgh that were trying to find a way to engage their Judaism and anti-genocide coalition seemed like a place where we, our people have had experience. And so like, no one should go through that ever. During that campaign, our university had invested in companies that were doing business with the Sudanese government. And so we led this big campaign to try to stop our university from investing in those companies. One of my favorite things that we did is we got, so there had been like 640,000 people that had been displaced. And so we made 640 scarecrows and, and then like made this like massive pile in the middle of the main area of the university. And it was during the election. So an Obama and a McCain scarecrow kind of like ignoring them and then literature about what was going on. It was like this massive pile. So at the end of the day, the university told us that they would never make a financial decision based on social concern. I was thinking about what was going on, and I was thinking 
there's like a sphere of influence graph. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but it's like, you can control you. You have like some strong influence around your family and friends. And then you have like maybe your workplace, then those rings just get like kind of bigger and the amount of power that you have decreases, like the amount of influence you have. Essentially the purpose of this diagram is to understand like where should you put your energy in order to make change. So I was like, well, I'm not changing the university. I can influence my friends, but they're already influenced and we're not making a whole lot of change. But I do eat like six times a day. And like, that's a significant amount of purchasing power that's going towards something. And that's also a significant amount of engagement that I'm having with a food community that I know nothing about. So it's like, I'm eating all this stuff, but like, wait, who's growing it? Where does it come from? What are the factory conditions? Like, oh my gosh, it is a factory. Whoa, I didn't even think about that. And it just kind of like spiraled into this thing. Food is a really useful tool to understand a lot of aspects of our society. So whether that's workers' rights or whether that's environmentalism and sustainability or whether that's uh, equity, who has access to food, what types of food, who decides what food we eat, all of that is a really interesting equity conversation. What, what food is safe? And for me, for my culture, for my people, and these are questions that refugees for sure. And, you know, like imagine coming to Vancouver and you're like, oh my God, where do I buy my things that make me me? And so it was 2010 and there urban farming community in Vancouver hadn't really established itself. It was just beginning to. And then so there was like 17 different farms here in the city that were interested in figuring out who they were, how many of them were they, what did they grow, what is the thing that's going on. And I'd worked for the U.S. Census before, so I was really good at counting people. I had a finance degree, so I was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. Essentially, my research questions. How many of urban farmers are there? What do they grow? How much do they grow? And why? What is this thing? For the next two years, I interviewed all these different farmers and they're all like really incredible, dedicated people that kind of felt as I did is like, don't have control over the world in some way. As I did my interviews with them, one of the farms, Freshers, at that time was growing food in backyards, just kind of like asking the question, like, how much food can we grow? Um, how much food could we sell? How much food could we share with our community? One backyard, which is feeding like three families, became eight backyards, uh, feeding 35 families. One of those backyards was adjacent to an elementary school. The school garden had been in, in disuse and was underutilized and there were needles in the garden and and people sleeping in the garden, which made it harder for the teachers to really use and feel comfortable with. And so the principal kind of like looked through the fence and kind of like saw these like beautiful cabbages and cauliflower and stray rows and organized, uh, really like a beautiful growing space. And I was like, oh yeah, how do we get that in here? And, you know, we didn't have no money. We were just like, we weren't even an organization at this point. And, and it was just kind of like friends doing this for fun. And the principal was like, why don't you guys come in here? And so we were like, okay. 
we were like, well, if you let us sell the produce here, maybe we'll be able to pay our way. And in exchange, we'll work with the teachers to have class outside. So we never made any money, like, at all. But what we did notice is that all of a sudden, these, like, kids were, like, fighting to get outside first. And they were fighting to eat the broccoli and were pushing other kids aside to eat vegetables. And, like, you know, violence aside, like, that's pretty awesome when you have, like, rigor for, like, wanting vegetables. And it turns out that like when kids are outside and growing vegetables in particular, academic confidence increases and because they're seeing the success that they've planted and, and literally eating their success. And lo and behold, they eat more vegetables. average age of a farmer in BC is it's like 55. For every farmer under 35, there are six over 65. So I don't really want to be farming when I'm that old. It just seems really hard. It's hard work. Yeah, so like what can we do about that? So Fresh Roots trains young farmers every year. We have um, interns that come and work with us from March through November. It's an incredible opportunity for people to really learn how to grow. We're educators with a particular focus around youth empowerment. How can we help them recognize their own power, hold mirrors up to them so they can see themselves in a way that is empowering for them? Just before Christmas, we had our first volunteer. It's steadily grown uh, since then, and now there's 16 people doing weekly pickups and drop-off, kind of five or six that are doing eat regular pickups when they have free time. From September until December, it's kind of all me doing everything, and so it's been really nice seeing how much the community wants to help out. And yeah, I've been partnering with King David a little bit and took student volunteers around to show them, and I'd like to do more of that starting next September with more schools. I'm giving a talk at an elementary school on Thursday, so I do want to bring education in and especially yeah, educate the younger generation growing up. Hello, Fox Hill Farm. Oh, hi, Michael. It's April calling from the Jewish Museum. Hello, April. Um, so so tell, me, tell me what we're doing. Michael Abelman is the founder of Soul Foods, a Vancouver project that transforms vacant urban land into street farms. Not only do they use this space to grow edible produce, but also to empower individuals by providing employment and agricultural training. Soul Foods Street Farm is now the largest urban farm project in North America. Yeah, so I grew up in the States in, in uh, Delaware. Uh, my grandparents and great-grandparents uh, had uh, settled in southern Delaware in Sussex County, which was uh, uh, very much a rural uh, agricultural area. In fact, my uh, great-grandparents had a fairly profound impact on the agriculture in that part of the state. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but my great-grandfather ran a store that supplied mules and agricultural equipment and seeds and uh, uh, most importantly, advice to young starting farmers. And still to this day, there are long-term farm families in that community who attribute their start to their relationship with my great-grandfather, which is quite fascinating. I did spend a lot of time with my grandparents and did travel with my grandfather on many occasions to Sussex County, stopping to see his old friends. And on farms and you know mm -hmm. sitting over a bushel basket of uh, cantaloupes or peaches or tomatoes uh, mm -hmm. talking about you know just talking story 
you know, as a kid, it's not an intellectual experience, but those experiences of meeting my grandparents' rural friends and former neighbors, and also eating meals at my grandparents' table, the foods that they both grew, that their neighbors and uh, farmers in the area grew, of course, were the foods we ate, but they became very much a part of my culinary history as a child and growing up. And so somewhat unconsciously, I found myself growing those same foods <laughs> as an adult. You know, farming was not something that I ever even remotely imagined I would be engaged in oh, really? as a profession. It was probably the last, if you'd asked me in high school, I would have probably <laughs> laughed at the idea. And it was not a terribly conscious process to actually finding my way into agriculture, but I've been doing it since I was 18 and I'm now 63, so 43 years or something. It was just by chance that I found myself engaged. You know, I joined a commune in California. It was based on agrarian principles. Within a few months in that commune, I was managing the 100-acre pear and apple orchard, organic orchard, uh, one of the first organic orchards in North America. Um, I knew nothing about it. I had a, a 1930s copy of a book called Modern Fruit Science, uh, the journal from the guy who had run the place the year before and given up in frustration, and a copy of Goethe's famous quote mm. attached to the door of my uh, 20-foot unheated trailer. Um, whatever you can do or believe you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, magic, and power in it. I was listening to, I think it was a keynote that you delivered a few years ago, um, and you were speaking about farming in California and how the energy of the people that you were farming with became infused into the land and the fruits that were harvested. And I thought that was a really great sentiment. And I wondered if you could speak a little more to this idea about how our energy comes through in the food that we cook or the food that we farm. Yeah. Well, you know, I, if I go out to eat or something, I can always tell how the <laughs> cook and the staff in the kitchen are feeling, you know. Sadly, a lot of commercial kitchens are run on anger, you know, <laughs> because there's so much stress and tension. I'm not saying, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are, you know, it's a tense, stressful environment. And you can, I, you know, I can feel it, I can taste it, you know. And likewise, I've always said that the best fertilizer is the farmer's footsteps on the field. You know, my experience has been very definitively that when my crew is happy while working the fields, then the food simply tastes better that we're harvesting. There are energetic things, and without sounding too woo-woo, there's no question that our energy in the field, how we feel about what we're doing while we're doing it, our presence, um, the immense amount of detail that we apply to every bunch, you know, every fruit, every leaf, every root, you know, has a big impact that people feel it, they taste it, you know. It was that community experience that, that really inf has informed all of my agricultural endeavors. I, um, I have many ways with greater and lesser success tried to continue that over the years. And certainly, you know, soul food is an example of trying to share what I consider to be a privileged life and a privileged experience with those who are not. I think that, unfortunately, those of us who've been farming organically for any period of time, the majority of that time, the, the most of the food I've I've grown and sold and gone to a very narrow segment of the society, and that's those who can afford it, right? 
many of us who've been at it a while have recognized that. We, we've tried to find creative ways to address that. And, and, you know, you can give food away. That's certainly a strategy. But I always felt that if we could teach people to grow it for themselves and develop enterprises that allowed them to grow an income along with the food, you know, feed their neighborhoods, feed themselves well while making money, I think to me was always the, the goal, you know. You know, when you have those kinds of realizations at 25 or 26, it's one thing, but then the fact that that carried on until I was in my 60s, manifestation has changed. It's more realistic. It's less romantic. Uh, I don't believe that I am trying to save anyone. I think there's a huge danger in thinking that we know what other people need, right? Um, especially in places where we don't live. about the project which came out last fall and and the you know the book is a very sobering and honest look at where we succeeded but especially where we fell short and i think that's more uh, valuable i'm not interested in just talking about our successes because yeah. i think it's it's important for people to know the reality and the challenges of trying to do what we've done it's not easy you know you're considered like a pioneer of organic farming and urban horticulture working in that realm since the 70s and it's definitely boomed now and it seems like it's come out of nowhere but you've had that experience through many I'm sure challenges and frustrations as much as success so I was wondering looking back what you would have told yourself if you could have given your younger self some advice about this field yeah that's a good question well I mean you know youth especially young men there is a um, uh, jump off the cliff arrogance that is part of you know we don't have a lot of humility and I think I think that's necessary in a way it's what drives us forward you know but if I was looking back and giving myself advice at 20 or 30 it would have been to number one slow down the big ideas are are wonderful one must always have a vision but it's all the little stuff done well that makes the difference, right? You can't notice the little stuff or what is being asked of you unless you're, you know, paying attention. Sometimes in our youthful exuberance and desire to blast through and get things done and create these grandiose projects, we are forgetting that actually some of the details are really what makes the difference. Again, what I said earlier that feels really important in terms of our desire to try to reach out to people who are underserved, I think is there's a danger, you know, mm-hmm. and we have to be careful because as I said, it's, you know, it's an extremely dangerous thing to think that you know what other people need. How do you lend your skills? How do you lend your privilege without imposing? This is a very fine balance. And how do you allow something to um, have its own life, you know, in its own way? In other words, spark the beginning plant the seed, but be willing to step aside. Thank you for joining us for the final episode of The Kitchen Stories, produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of BC. We've covered a lot of ground over the past few months and learned about some inspiring approaches community members are bringing to food. 
We'd love to hear what you thought of the series. What was your favorite episode? Was there something we forgot to mention? Do you have a story we can share? Maybe an idea for another podcast series? Send us a note at info at jewishmuseum.ca. The Kitchen Stories has been a labor of love. I'd personally like to thank April Thompson for putting in the long hours to make our vision a reality, enhancing it along the way. Thank you also to Jeff Mayer for working his magic to make our little project sound pro. Elisa Lazier provided essential research support, and Alyssa Rudenberg and Marcy Babins provided support in countless ways. Thank you. This series would not have been possible without the dozens of community members who generously set aside time to share their stories with us. A sincere thank you to each of them. Thank you also to the many volunteer interviewers who helped us collect these stories. The Kitchen Stories has been part of the JMABC series Feeding Community, a collection of food programs offered through 2017. Feeding Community was sponsored by Instafund, with additional support provided by the Jewish Federation of Greater Vancouver, the Jewish Community Foundation, the Government of Canada, the Province of British Columbia, and the City of Vancouver. This episode features music by Poddington Bear and John Luke Hefferman. If you like the work we do, please consider becoming a sponsor. The Jewish Museum and Archives has a number of exciting projects coming up in 2018, all made possible through community contributions. To learn about sponsoring an upcoming JMABC project, contact info at jewishmuseum.ca. Thanks for listening. I hope this series has inspired you to think a little differently about the food on your table. We wish you many great feasts with friends and loved ones in the year to come. Bye for now.